I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 3, 1 to 11. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To, to grind the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we aid the circumcision, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to seal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I had the opportunity to celebrate our ninth anniversary this week, Megan and I did, which is awesome. Every year, every year that she is happily married to me is a great year because I am. J Jonathan Edwards' wife wrote a book called "Marriage to a Difficult Man," and I I did buy that this year, and I said I, this explains a lot. So uh, she's great. Uh, but I was thinking back this week as I read this passage, I thought, man, kind of the one one thrust that is that is that is through this passage is that really that. The greatest threat against our joy in Christ is confidence in self. And we live in a culture that places great confidence uh, in self and prides ourselves in playing, praying, uh, playing, putting confidence in ourselves, which confidence in and of itself uh, is not a bad thing, but too much confidence in ourselves can be a very bad thing. Uh, so as I was thinking about our, our anniversary and how we got hitched and, and the, kind of the process of that, Megan and I met in Las Vegas helping to plant a church and and I can remember uh, four months in uh, into dating, calling her dad and and saying, "Hey, um, I think I'd like to marry your daughter." And uh, and he, you know, he's a great guy. He's asking all of these questions that I, I mean, I would ask way more questions if somebody was trying to marry my daughter. He's asking all these questions that that you know kind of lie around the, the edges of like, "Hey, how are you going to provide? I know you're in school full time. You're waiting tables now. How do you think you're going to provide?" And I was just so confident. I was so confident that God was going to work it all out. I was like, yeah, I'm working at the Cheesecake Factory waiting table. Things will be great, Gary. Don't worry about it. I got this. We got this. And I was so confident in this plan that was really, looking back, pretty insecure, if I'm honest. And uh, I was just so confident in that. And I think a lot of times, as I look back, I think, man, I would have, uh, I would have busted that guy's chops a little more if he called and asked to, to marry my daughter. And uh, he was gracious to me, and, and all has went well. But I think a lot of times we have a tendency to put too much confidence in things that aren't really things we can be confident in. Namely, ourselves. And this is the thrust of what Paul talks about today. So my hope, in, in, and as we look at Philippians 3 today, we've been looking at this, this subject of joy that Paul just has littered all over his letter to the church at, 
at Philippi. Um, my hope is that we would be much less confident in ourselves today. How's that for a motivational speech? My hope is that we'd be much less confident in ourselves and much more confident in Christ today. And I think that, I think that God will do that in and through us if our hearts are open to it. So kind of two points where I want to take us today. The first one is this. I want to tell you the bad news. And then I want to tell you the good news. The bad news is this, is that we are hardwired for self-salvation. We are hardwired for it. It is a part of the fall. It is a part of our DNA as humans is that we think that we can save ourselves. And so we're all on this path. <laughs> we're all a part of this self-salvation project. We try to save ourselves with different things and ways and postures that we try to put ourselves into. And as Paul writes this in Philippians 3.1, we'll pick it up here. I'll just kind of kind of take us through it. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul's all about joy. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What's he talking about there? Well, evidently, whenever he was with the church, he was telling them about their need for the Gospel. And so here he's writing them and telling them again that, hey, you need the Gospel. You can't forget the Gospel. And, and you and I, we have this propensity to forget the Gospel. Think about this. Today we are celebrating the 499th year uh, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Did you guys know that? Next year's the 500th year when Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the, on the church of the door at Wittenberg in Germany and, and said, hey man, I think things aren't right. I don't think we're, we're preaching the same Gospel that the Bible's preaching. That's what happened in the Protestant Reformation. That's when the church became more alive to the real Gospel. Guys, the whole church forgot the Gospel for hundreds of years. You know that? What makes us think that we're not going to forget it? I forget the Gospel every single day. I don't know about you. I forget that Jesus has saved me. I forget that he, it's Him that's empowering me to walk out this life. I forget that He's put people around me to encourage me. And I feel like I'm, I'm alone and i got to go at this thing all by myself every single morning when I wake up. That's why we have to get in the Word together. So, you know, it's, it's like this, okay? Have you ever been prescribed medication before and you start feeling better? You start feeling better, so what do you want to do? Stop taking the medicine, right? The antibiotic, it's, I mean, you, you got to take it for 10 days, Ryan. You know this. I'm feeling better. I don't need to take antibiotic. And then it's not in your system enough. You get sick again. We do the same thing with Jesus. It's like, it's like, man, when I get enough Jesus in me to start feeling better, start walking on the right path to not be entangled in sin again, then, then I can start going back down my own self-salvation project again. It's the temptation we fall into every single day of every single week if we're honest. There's a subtle disease within us all. And it lives to minimize the appearance of sin and maximize the effort of self, the appearance of self. But what if instead we approach Jesus like this? That we needed a constant IV drip of the Gospel every single day to be reminded that we don't have to save ourselves. That we can, we can quit running the rat race of self-promotion because His work is sufficient for us. His life is sufficient for us. And that's enough for us. What, what if we lived that way? Some of you in here, have, if you're honest, have never really experienced the rest and release that Jesus has for you. It's, it's, a, it's a step of faith to die to ourselves, to let our flesh die, to come alive in Christ. Paul goes on in Philippians 3, verses 2 and 3, and he says this, Look out for the dogs. 
Look out for those evildoers, those who, those who want to mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who work, worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what's he writing about here? Well, there was this, this sect of Messianic Jews um, that, that, that really valued their Jewishness and thought that Gentiles that came in should become Jewish in order to become true Christians. And he's saying, hey guys, I don't care how much you do to your body, how much you deny yourself, uh, how, how much of the Bible you have memorized, because none of it matters. None of what you can do for God matters in the end of things. It's not adding to the account balance of your life in Christ. The only thing that adds to that is Jesus. He's saying, watch out. Those people are dangerous. The people that want to tell you that you don't need Jesus that much. The people that want to tell you that you're not as bad as you were in college and that's a good thing. That you can trust in yourself that, that your marriage is better now because it's not as bad as it was the first year. Because all of those are subtle temptations and lies that want to take you down the road of self-promotion and self-salvation. And they're all a dangerous road to walk down. This is what Paul says. You've got to watch out. Watch out for those evildoers. Because they want to take you away from trusting Jesus. And each and every one of us have our own little temptations to trust in of ourselves. It's, it's our jobs. Uh, it's the strength of our families. It's the strength of our security in relationships. It's, it's all of these things that tempt us and lure us to place our trust in ourselves and in others instead of Jesus. And the hidden grace of the Gospel is this, is that Jesus is so content to uproot those things because He loves us so much. He uproots those things in our life that take us away from full confidence in Him. And we think that that's the end of the world when those things happen. I can tell you from experience, it's happened to me over and over this week. They're hidden graces. Though. What if we saw them as invitations instead of assaults? What if we saw them as invitations to trust Christ more? So, we notice that He draws a juxtaposition in Philippians 3. He draws this juxtaposition, this comparison between the flesh and the Spirit. So let's walk down this road a little bit here. So what's the flesh? Here's how I would define the flesh. The flesh is the product of our fallen human condition. It's the, it's the product of our fallen human condition. That the old man Adam that we were born into is still alive in parts of our hearts and our souls and needs to be put to death. The thing to remember about the flesh is this, is it always seeks to magnify us. It seeks to take the spotlight off of Jesus and put it on you. Look how great this guy is. Isn't he fantastic? Look, he doesn't even need to repent. He's so holy. The flesh seeks to magnify us and it seems, it seems like it's a beautiful, great thing. But it's, take, it's this lure, it's this bait to take us away from dependence on Jesus. Now, the flesh typically manifests itself like this. Either it is ridiculously unrighteous. It's, it's crazy unrighteous. Like you can't believe how bad these people are. Or it's so good that you can't believe that they're actually sinners. It typically manifests itself like that in people. Like it's either so bad or it's so good. It's both the flesh. It's both, it both leads to death when we put our trust in it. Now, likewise, on the other side of things, we've got the Spirit. So this, this new life in Jesus is infused and empowered by the life of Jesus. When we receive Him, we're given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to those that put their faith in Jesus. 
The Holy Spirit is the product of Christ's redemption alive in us. It's the parts of our lives that have been redeemed under the Lordship of Christ. By God's grace, you're not what you used to be, right? That's not a reason for you to look at yourself and say, hmm, I'm not as bad as I used to be. It's a reason to look at Jesus and say, wow, look what He's redeemed in me. Look what He's done in me. I used to respond this way, but now I don't because of His grace toward me. The big thing to remember about the Spirit is this. The Spirit always seeks to shine the spotlight on Jesus. It seeks to magnify Him, to make Him known. John 16.13 talks about the Spirit coming. Jesus says this, when the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. For whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit is always whispering in our ears, it's true, it's true. You can believe the Gospel. You don't have to trust yourself. It's true. You can really really lay down this journey, this road of trying to build a life for yourself and seek to magnify His life in you. You can really do, you can afford to forget yourself when you're in Jesus because He's everything. You can really live that life. But to walk by the Spirit, there's an incredibly important piece of information that you and I must base our lives on. And it's not a message that any, anyone in this world will tell you that's not a Christian. And it's this we are not inherently good people. Any self-help book is going to build on the foundation of the fact that you're inherently good and we just need to draw out some more of that goodness. The problem is the Bible tells us the exact opposite, that you are so bad that God had to send His Son. Now we shouldn't be ashamed of that because this is all part of God's unfolding drama of redemption that He planned before the foundation of the world to draw us to Himself and to show us His character and love. But we don't have to deny the fact that we are really, really bad people. That always desire... Galatia, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 6, when he's talking about how, what God sees when he looks down at, at, at creation during the time of Noah, he says that they were always and only sinning. So tell me when they weren't sinning. You know what I'm saying? They're always and only sinning. That's what we're doing in our flesh. Now, sometimes we church it up and we make it look good, we make it look presentable. But anything apart from Jesus, anything apart from walking in the Spirit, is the flesh. And what we got to know about the flesh is this, is that sinful actions in the flesh are just the tip of the iceberg. A lot of times we, we, place, a, we place an emphasis on action and behavior um, that's, that's probably too great. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Uh, Richard Lovelace says it like this, Biblical definitions of sin give much more prominence to attitudes or continuous patterns of behavior than to isolated acts. Now you and I, we we tend to think about the isolated acts of sin. The Bible tends to talk about these patterns of behavior, these heart postures that desire to sin. Let's let's go to the Bible and look at this. Galatians chapter 5, 19-24 says this. Now I want you to listen as we read this. I want you to listen for actual actions and behaviors, but then also attitudes. So actions and attitudes. Let's listen for the difference in the two and see if they're both present here. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and like these things I warn you, 
as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then we're really familiar with this next part. But the fruit of the Spirit, kind of juxtaposing this, the flesh and then the Spirit, is love, is joy, is peace, is patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Have you noticed the emphasis on attitude and posture of the heart in this list of things? Looking at the flesh, I mean, uh, there's actions. I mean, there's sexual immorality, debauchery, rage, drunkenness. Those are actions that come out of our bodies, that, that come through our hands, but there are also attitudes that produce those. They lie underneath the actions, like impurity and idolatry and hatred and strife and bitterness and selfishness. Those things all produce activity. The flesh reveals itself, but the flesh is alive in the heart long before it reveals itself in the hand. Or looking at the fruit of the Spirit, it's almost all postures of the heart. It's almost all attitudes. So love is a posture of the heart before it's an action of the hand. Now we know love when we see love, but it was alive in the heart before it was alive in our hands and through our actions. So the question is, for us, how do we identify the deep undercurrents of the flesh? Because all of us that, that follow Christ in this room, we, don't want the, we want to crucify the flesh like Paul encourages us to in Galatians 5. We, we want it to be put to death. We want the Spirit to become alive inside of us more and more each day. So how do we identify and uproot and confess and repent of all of these things? Well, Susanna Wesley had a great definition of sin. Susanna Wesley was... Uh, John and Charles Wesley's mother. Now, this lady was something else, okay? I mean, she put the Duggars to shame. And she had 19 kids. I mean, she had, she had all these kids. I mean, and she still had time for this vibrant relationship with the Lord. And, and I, mean, she, I mean, out of her family came the Methodist church. I mean, that's a pretty big one, right? I mean, geez, I mean, she had quite the offspring. Well, it all started in the house. It all started in the home. And one day, uh, John, as a young boy, will ask his mom, how do I know when I'm sinning? How do I identify sin? And here's what she said. John, whatever weakens your reasoning, John, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, it sears it. It makes it not as vulnerable and susceptible to, to seeing sin, to feeling sin. Whatever, John, whatever obscures your sense of God. John, whatever takes away your relish for spiritual things. Whatever takes those desires, whatever brings you alive in Jesus, whatever those things are, John, if anything increases the authority and the power of the flesh, John, over the Spirit, that to you becomes sin. However good it might be. So you see, you can do something and it not be sin, and you can do the same thing and it be sin. It all depends on the posture of the heart and the flesh manifests itself first in the postures of our heart. This is why we don't just repent of actions when we get caught, when we get found out. We have to repent when we first see the desire to sin. We've got to repent then because that's, that's before the, 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 the train has completely went off the rails. Paul goes on to say this in Philippians 3, 4-6. He says, hey, look, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason, I get this. I got more. Here's what he says. He kind of gives his resume here. 
circumcised on the eighth day. That means he took God's Word seriously as parents did too. Of the people of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, the kind of the, the most proud tribe of, of Benjamin. It's where, it's where King Saul was from, the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal. I mean, I was passionate about being a Pharisee. I persecuted Christians. I persecuted the church. Any opponent of what we were proclaiming, we persecuted them. We got rid of them as to righteousness under the law. And people would look at him and say, this dude's blameless. He's got nothing to repent of. This guy's got it all together. That was Paul's resume. And you know what he says about it? It's all worthless. It's all worthless. If anyone's got reason to celebrate, I mean, I'm racially superior to everyone else. I'm an Israelite. Nationalistic. He's a self-promoting man. I mean, this guy is a dream. But he says it's all worthless. Church, what, what if, just what if, what if we valued awareness more than appearance? What if we valued the fact that we're becoming more aware of sin and more aware of the enemy's schemes in our hearts, in our lives, in our community? What if as a church we repented more? What if we were just honest about where we were and we looked a lot worse immediately? I mean... <laughs> That's what I'm noticing about our church. I know it's getting healthy because I can see it seems like we're getting worse. But it's healthy, guys. We're getting more honest about our sin. What if we valued that awareness of sin more than the appearance of righteousness? You know what would happen in our our church, in our missional communities, in our discipleship groups, in our families? Jesus would be exalted. He would be magnified. Because we would show ourselves for what we are. That we are absolutely worthless without Christ. After all, the more we realize how messed up we are, the better we're actually doing in Jesus. Did you know that? The more messed up things seem to be, the better we're probably doing in Jesus. Because we can't trust ourselves. What would this look like? This vulnerability, this confession, this lack of comparison. What if we just trashed comparison? We say it's worthless. There's no use in comparing myself. With anyone else, it's just going to steal my joy. It's just going to take me away from Christ. It's just going to make me trust in myself more. It would give us more rest. We'd be able to pause and take deeper breaths and to know that He's with us to the end of the age. Secondly, let's get on to talk about the good news even more. The good news is this. We can know Jesus. We can know Jesus And we can let the flesh die. We can starve the flesh because it has no value. has no sustenance for our spiritual lives. So Paul's whole system of accounting was breaking down here. Think about this. It's like like going uh, to to, to the bank and checking your balance of your ATM and realizing that you have been working all this time and your balance had not been accruing any more cash. I mean, think about that. That's what, what Paul's realizing when he writes this. Hey guys, look, I was working hard, but I was trying to deposit false currency all of these years. And when I finally got the ATM slip out and it said zero balance, I kind of freaked out until I realized that I had cash in hand with Jesus. That's the difference. It's better than money in the bank, it's cash in hand with Jesus. It's, it's value, it's worth. He knows us, we know him, we're in this relationship. 
There's a difference in knowing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. There's a difference there. You see, Paul knew about God before. But when he met Jesus personally on the road to Damascus, vulnerable and blind before God with nothing to show in his account, that's when, that's when he knew Jesus. That's when he began to know Jesus when he had nothing to show for his life. I mean, have you ever, have you ever ran into someone famous before? You know, like maybe like last year in October, I was in uh, I was in LA with a friend of mine, and uh, we were we were out for a meeting, and uh, we ran into uh, a guy that used to play for the University of Kentucky. His name is Julius Randall. Kind of a big deal. Plays for the Los Angeles Lakers now. And I kid you not, my friend Andrew kind of just has this knack. Uh, for, for like running into famous people. And I just happened to be with him this time. And he stops the car, pulls over, throws the emergency blinkers on. We jump out of the car going into this designer like store. The, the kind of store that's so expensive it doesn't even have a sign out front. You know what I'm talking about? So we go in there. He's like, Julius, what's up, man? And Julius Randall's like, what's going on here, man? Like, this is uh, kind of weird. So we get up, we take a picture, and Andrew acted like he knew Julius. Man, I've been watching you play ball for a few years at UK. I mean, he acted like he knew him. He didn't really know him, though. There's a difference in knowing about someone and actually knowing someone. There's a difference there. Paul, Paul wants to make that clear that Jesus has been made His own. Let's read this. Philippians 3, uh, 7 through 11. I'm just going to read this, this chunk for us here. Just, just hear what Paul thinks about the flesh compared to Jesus. But whatever gain I had, whatever money I had in the bank, I count it as loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That, that, that verse right there ought to cause us to, to kind of stumble a little bit and to kind of stop. Everything's worthless. If we're, if we're comparing apples to apples, everything's worthless compared to knowing Jesus. Now, I, I could tell you a list of things that I think that this past week I have thought are more valuable than Jesus. Can you? They're the things that preoccupy your mind. They're the things that, that when your mind is, is not directed somewhere, you think about. Maybe it's the security and health of your family. Maybe it's security of your possessions. Maybe, um, maybe it's the security of your job. Maybe your mind wanders to other places. Those are the things that we're tempted to place more confidence in than Jesus. And he says, when I, when, I, when I do the actual accounting, we get to the bottom line of net worth here, they're completely worthless. Completely worthless. Church, I don't want to settle for professing Christ without actually possessing Christ. You know what I mean? Like in the South, this is like our greatest kind of taboo thing, right? I mean, we, we, everybody's a, I mean, when I moved here, I was like, why do I need to plant a church here? Everybody's a Christian. Everybody professes Christ. I came from this place where, where people didn't profess Christ as much, and then I get here, and it's like, everybody I meet is a Christian. God, why have you called me to Atlanta? This, this must be the New Jerusalem. I mean, everyone's a Christian here. In the South, we are plagued with professing Christ without actually possessing Him. And this is why I've told our leadership team before, I think our greatest evangelism in Atlanta is going to be done through discipleship. I think people are realizing what it means to actually follow Christ as we get into life-on-life -life relationships together. This is why 
This is, this is why Sunday mornings are great. They're kind of a family reunion where we all come together, but they're not sufficient to hold the weight of the Gospel as we bear it out and duke it out with one another and seek to follow Jesus together. We don't have to fake it till we make it. We don't have to act like everything's okay. Jesus can handle your honesty. If He seems distant to you, confess that to Him. God, I, I can't feel Your presence. I don't see You right now. You seem to be doing this thing, but man, I thought you really needed to do this thing. He can handle your honesty. That's what the Psalms are all about. I mean, you can read the Psalms and see the things that David writes and think, man, David, did you even know God? I mean, of course He's with you. The Bible says you are a man after God's own heart. The Psalms are honest. And I think this is why we might need to spend more time there to see that God can handle our honesty. And that as we duke it out with God, we might actually possess Him a little more deeply. You, do you remember? I'm, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here. Genesis 32. Jacob wrestles with God. You remember what he says to God. I'm not going to let go of you until what? You bless me. When's the last time you told God that? I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me, God, because I, it doesn't feel like you're blessing me right now. Contend with Him. He's worthy. He's so worth it. He can handle it. He is God. John 17.3 says this. This is, this is the actual Lord's Prayer. Okay, What we're praying in, in Matthew 6 and Luke 10 uh, is the disciples' prayer, really. The actual Lord's Prayer, the one that the Lord prayed, was John 17 when He prays to His Father. He says this in His prayer, and this is eternal life. He's praying to His Father. That they know You. That's what eternal life is. That they, that they would actually know You. The one and only true God and Jesus Christ You have sent. That's what eternal life is. is knowing God. It's not doing a bunch of stuff for God. It's knowing Him. Do you know Him, church? Is He personal to you? Do you know Him? So how do we diagnose our vibrancy and dullness in Christ? What does that look like? I think we have permission to do that. I think, I think different things, because we're wired differently, different things help us to feel the vibrancy of Christ in our lives. For you artists, maybe it's... And you really, you really get in tune with God when you're, when you're painting or when you're, you're playing music and, and God really draws you into this sweet spot. What would it look like for you to to kind of lean in a little bit more there. What's it look like? I mean, when you look back in your life and you think about the sweetest seasons that you've had with Jesus, what were some of the common denominators? What would it look like for you to lean in a little bit more in those areas? For me, I know this. If I don't start my day with God, I ain't going to find Him the rest of the day. You know what I mean? I'm just going to get on my task list. I'm a you know, high D kind of driver, task-oriented person. i got to start my day with Jesus. And when I don't, I'm just going to run my own agenda that whole day. I started my day with Jesus this morning, by the way. Just, just want to let you all know that. Um, so, so what is it that stirs your affections? Identify those things. Press in there. Make time for that. Schedule your day around those things. And then also, identify what robs your affections in Christ. What is it that, 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 that takes your joy away? My, maybe my wife and I, some, some of you are on social media. My wife and I just 
found that a lot of times, man, social media just, it just leads us down this road of comparison as we just look at different things. And sometimes we just need to starve the flesh in that area. We just need to cut it off for a while. I mean, I love to find out what y'all are doing and, and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes the enemy just uses it as this lure to kind of drag me in to get into this comparative attitude. And it'd be better for me to just call you up on the phone than look at you virtually on Facebook. You know what I mean? It'd be better for me to just get face-to-face with you and share life with you. What robs your affections in Christ? Starve those things. Cut them out. Paul gives us permission to do that. And lastly, Paul says that nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. So that, that word... Uh, He says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss, verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Everything's lost. We've talked about that. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Now that word rubbish, some of you guys know what that word means. There's a reason why this word is only found one time in the Bible. You know why? Because it's like a cuss word, alright? I mean, it is a very, uh, kind of a crude word. I mean, Paul has no other word to use to describe the flesh than this word. You know what it means? It means feces. It means excrement. It means dung. It means waste. That's what the word skybala means. Rubbish. That's what it means. And in my discipleship group, Gordon always he, he loves to talk about this verse because he says our old lives, our old lives are fertilizer for our new lives in Christ. The old man Adam dies, the new man in Christ comes alive. God uses everything in your life. Everything that you've tried to, to kind of turn into the self-salvation project, He uses it all. He uses every single part of your life as fertilizer for your new life in Christ. To give it plush, green growth. So we can let that die because it only actually has use. Your old life only actually has use when you let it die. When you let go of it. That's when it has use for your new life in Christ. My friend Eric uh, and I, when I was in elementary school, uh, he had this playhouse in his backyard. And, uh, and one day, uh, we had these kind of archaeological digging tools. And uh, one day, we, we found uh, some minerals in his backyard that, uh, man, we started looking them up in books and stuff like that. And, uh, man, these look like really valuable minerals. Uh, one of them in particular looked like gold. I mean, it was so, so here's what happened. I'll just tell you the, the, the short of it. Every single day for about the better part of a month, we would get off the bus and we would go to his house after school and we would dig until dark. We would just I mean, his backyard, his parents probably loved us. The backyard was a disaster. We would dig until dark and we had this kind of bucket full of like what appeared to be, I mean, like really valuable minerals. Until we took them to the local jeweler. That's the only place we knew where to go. And we're like, hey man, what are these things worth? And he looked at them and he's like, oh man, this is, I can't, do you find this here in Kentucky? And we're like, yeah, yeah, tell us more. He's like, oh, that's pyrite. You know what pyrite is? Fool's gold. We're like, oh, don't tell us that. I just gave a month of my life to fool's gold. I said, so we're like debating. So what's it worth? It's got to be worth a little something, right? It's worth absolutely nothing. Friends, I don't want to get to the end of my life and spend it laboring for fool's gold. I don't want to do that. Anything other than knowing Christ and the life that flows from Him is fool's gold. It has the appearance of good things. It has the appearance of worth, but it's absolutely worthless when we stand before God. The only thing that has any value is Jesus. I want to to briefly tell you about a story that's found in the Bible. It's from Luke 
chapter 15. I'm going to read a few verses here. It's the story about two sons. These two sons are good sons. Their father is a good father. He's a wealthy man. And the two sons, um, they're kind of different, okay? I mean, they're different. Um, the older son, is he's a little more responsible. Can I get an amen, firstborns? You're a little more responsible than your younger siblings. Younger sons, he's a little, how do I put it, reckless? He's a little reckless. And so, the younger son says, hey look, Dad, I'm going to cut straight to the chase. Like, like, you're great and all. Can you just give me the inheritance? I know you're filthy rich. Can you just give me my share of the inheritance? You give me my share of the inheritance. You won't hear from me again. I won't cause you and mom any more problems. I know I've been, you know, kind of, kind of the black eye of the family. I'll just get away. I'll just go to a foreign land. I'll just, I'll just get away. And so the father, because he loves the son, writes him a check and he says, okay, be on your way. And the son, the younger son, doesn't, I mean, he doesn't let anything stop him. He goes to a foreign land. And he spends all of his money on reckless living. He has a great time spending that fool's gold. I mean, he is, he is, he is living it up until he runs out of money. He runs out of money and finds himself at the end of himself. He was, he was a rich man for a while. He could have invested it, probably made a lot of money, had a, had a lucrative lifestyle if he lived a little more responsibly, but he didn't have the self-control to do that. So he spends it all, finds himself in a pigsty. Longing, he's so hungry, he's longing to eat the food that the pigs are eating. <laughs> and then he has this thought, oh, I have this father. This, fa- this father that loves me. I mean, I know that I have jacked things up so bad that my, my family, like, they're not going to be happy to see me. But I, but I think dad, dad's different. Dad's di- I think dad, I think dad will take me in. He, you know, he might not move me back into the, the room I was in before. But I think he'll at least take me in. And so he, he starts on his way back home, you know, maybe gets a little cash for a bus ticket or whatever, starts on his way back home. And he gets home, and his father has been waiting for him. His, 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 father, his father's not surprised to see him. He knew that the son would come home, he just didn't know when he would come home. So the father's been waiting for him. And as soon as he sees his son coming, he's pro- the son's probably unrecognizable. He's so filthy and, uh, and poor. And he left in probably lush clothing and, and fine linens and he comes back in rags and the father sees him. And he, he lifts up his tunic and he just makes a beeline for him. He runs the fastest 40 he's ever ran before to see his son. And when he sees his son, what does he do? He embraces him. He hugs him. He doesn't say, hey man, what are you doing? You smell awful. Go get a shot. He says, no, he embraces him. He hugs him. And we later find out that he, that he does this because he's excited that his father, that his son knew that he could come home. Now, don't forget about the other brother. Let's read Luke uh, twenty-five, Luke fifteen twenty-five through thirty-two here. Scriptures say this. Now, his older son was in the field. He wasn't at the house when the when the, when the whole younger son and dad thing happened. And as he as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother, he's come home and your father, he's killed the fattened calf, he's put the robe, the ringer, the whole nine on him because he has received him back safe and sound. The older brother was angry. He was so angry that he refused to go and he didn't even want to be associated with his younger brother, the reckless one. So his father came out and he entreated him. Verse 29, but he answered his father, 
Look, this is key. These many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you gave me, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You see this defensive, comparative posture. Does it sound familiar? The life of the flesh bleeding out of the older son. But when this son of yours came home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The father said to his son, Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here's where I'm going with this. The younger brother physically squanders his flesh, comes to the end of his self-salvation project. He's aware. That's a, that's a theme. He's aware of where he's at in life. This is worthless. He gets to the end of his confidence in his self and, and wonders if the father will call him home and the son knows what, it's, what it means to be lost and to be found. This is key. His only hope is to come as a servant, yet the father reinstates him as a full son. Think about this. If the son, the younger son was reinstated as a full son, this means that he would not only get the inheritance that he squandered, he would get another inheritance as well. He'd be a full son. Even though he squandered the good gifts of the father, he's still going to get more because the father's that rich and he's that kind and he's that gracious. But think about the older son. The older son, even though he's close to the father proximity-wise, his heart is a million miles away. Friends, this is what is possible in us. We can appear to be close to God, but our hearts can be a million miles away if our confidence is not in Jesus. My question to you as we close is this. Where's your confidence today? Where's it at? What is it that you lean on more than anything? And my prayer for you is that if it's not Jesus, that God would uproot it and He'd do whatever it takes to do it because that is what's best for you. What is it that you're trying to prove in life? Would you receive the invitation that the Father has for each of us to receive Him? To receive Him? To come home and to see that nothing compares to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. He's worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. Um, I thank You that um, You have made us aware of our propensity to put too much confidence in ourselves. I, I pray that that may be revealing for us in this room. Even myself, Lord. I pray that You would draw me into a deeper place of realization and awareness that we wouldn't focus just on the actions of our hands but on the postures of our heart that we might grow an awareness in us that Christ is worthy to be treasured above everything and that we have this animal alive inside of us our flesh that seeks to promote ourselves and it's absolutely worthless in fact that the, the less that we're known the better that we are because the more Christ Jesus can shine in our lives. So Father, we, we come to You. We repent. We repent for running the rat race of self-promotion and living the American dream and 
God, I just don't want my friends in this room to get to the end of life and realize it's all fool's gold. God, do work in us today. God, give us a culture where we call the worthless things that we, that we put our trust in, that we call them worthless. That we, we love the good gifts You give us, but we never trust in them. Just bad gods. Father, meet us today. Meet us as we go to Your table. That we'd be as the filthy ragamuffin sons and daughters coming back to the rich father. We don't have to have a password to get in. We don't have to clean up our act. We just come. That's enough. Father, meet us today as we do that. In Jesus' name, Amen.